What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If someone comes into your assembly and, and, you, and is hungry and, and needs clothing, and you say to him, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not provide what is necessary for his body, what use is that? But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Will you show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works? You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, oh foolish fellow, that faith without works is absolutely useless? Consider Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son up on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works so that his faith would be perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed in God and it was credit to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see, faith has to have works. What about Rahab? In the same way, wasn't Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This morning, let's take a look at James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Let's open our Bibles, our apps, wherever we want to go. And we're going to look at what God's Word has to say to us. We continue our journey in chapter 2. Now, just as a refresher, the very first part of this chapter, James talked about favoritism. And he was saying that this is a way that the church can get off track by showing favoritism because it gets us off of our mission. Remember, our mission is to represent God to all people. It is to be blind to all nationalities, all genders, every person. It is simply to look at all people and say every single person is worthy of the gospel. And so he dealt with this idea of favoritism. And he also brought in the royal law, saying the royal law is what should direct our life, and that is to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what we are to do. I'm so encouraged last week that Pastor Ramazan was able to be with us. In follow-up to that message, he talked about Samaritans. And he asked us a, pier a piercing question of, who is the Samaritan in your life that you need to, to, to bridge the gap with and to build relationship with? And so I hope you took that to heart. But today we're going to be taking a look at something else that can get us off track and that is that we are not rolling up our sleeves and working for God. Where does our actions, where does our work come in in terms of Christianity? Now, I don't want us to take a casual approach to this. I want you to think about this on a very personal and practical level. And so here's the one application I'm going to have throughout. It's the same application that I want you to think about. Here's the challenge. Today, I want us to think how we can allow God's love to flow through us in meeting the needs of others. How is one way that we can do that? Now I want you to know we have all kinds of ways coming up in the summer. 
that we can reach out to uh, those that are in our community. We're, our prayer is that we would have six neighborhood Bible clubs. We're having a team of people that will be able to do those Bible clubs. But we need you to sign up and say, well, we have children in our neighborhood. We think it would be a great neighborhood. You pick a time, go to the website, let us know. That's a practical way that you can be involved. There are ways that you can be involved in getting your community group and going and being a part of Hammer and Nails or going down to Refuge of Hope. Or maybe you would be a part of one of the summer outreaches. We're doing Laundry Love next Saturday. We have the family film Fridays that you're going to hear about a little bit later. And so there's lots of ways for you to immediately apply or plan to apply this message. Now, as you probably know, most pastors like to start their message off with a hook. We try to do a story that brings you into the passage. Well, today I don't really have a hook. What I have, I don't have a verbal hook, I have a visual hook. And so I've asked Kim and Lance to come. Kim and Lance, I want you to sit right here. And I have a few questions for them that I would like for them to answer in regards to uh, just working for God. Now, I want you to know, I've known Kim and Lance for quite a long time. I've known Kim longer than Lance because I was Kim's junior high youth pastor. So I knew her when she was about 12 years old, uh, and it was, uh, it's been quite a journey. And being that they now have five children, we know that that was a very long time ago. Yeah, it was a long very time. long time ago. Well, they have five children, Emma, Josh, uh, Caleb, Josiah, Noah, and I got that out of order. Did I get it? Did I get it? Oh, wow, that's great. <laughs> Now, some people would look at you guys and say, listen, having five children is work enough. So, I mean, that's your mission in life, and I'm sure it is part of your mission. But I want you to share, when it comes to putting your faith into action, how do you teach your family what, what to do? So, Steve, I think that that's a great uh, segue, what you just said, because um, discipling our children and teaching them about God's Word and mentoring them and helping them to study God's Word and memorize and know God's Word is our job one, priority one. There is no other job out there that Kim and I can have, whether it's us out there serving at these different organizations, um, friends, family, it is job one. So it's the most important thing to us. Without that, bar none, Everything else, uh, if, we, if we didn't take this first priority that God's given us, everything else on these outside priorities would just crumble. And so it's, it's very important to us to make sure that our family is, um, is, uh, is discipled. Yes, so it's definitely um, to teach them first, and then we show them. Um, we decided early on in our marriage that we uh, would serve with our children. We would serve as a family because we wanted them to understand that this wasn't just words that we talk about, but deeds that we do. Um, and it comes out of an overflow of a grateful heart. So we, um, we are very uh, passionate, purposeful, and intentional in how, where, and why we serve. Um, because our goal is really that they will get it mm. and pass it on to the next generation. Psalm 145.4 um, says, our generation, one generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. Well, how will they see God's mighty acts unless they are serving 
with us. You know, when, when Moses parted the Red Sea, when God parted the Red Sea for Moses and the Israelites, the children were there. They saw that. When Joshua went in and did the Battle of Jericho, the children of Israel were there. They saw that. It was a child who gave his lunch to Jesus mm. and then watched him feed 5,000 with it. Um, and so Jesus himself said, don't hinder the children from coming to me. So we feel like they need a front row seat to see what God is doing in our lives. And so it's very important that we do it together um, as a family. And so we think that it's, you know, it's the most important priority that we have. Good, good. What would you guys say to the person who's thinking, you know what, I want to get involved. I want to set an example, but I just don't, I just don't know what to do. What, what would you say to that person? So we have to go back to, Kim and I have to go back to when we, that first happened for us. And so that was back um, many moons ago. <laughs> not as far as uh, when, when, uh, you know, when Kim was in Not this group. far back. Yeah, yeah. yeah not, but uh, so we, uh, we met a man named Clinton Lowen. And uh, he put up this silly uh, pie chart and uh, showed how we're not supposed to just give a slice. Our entire life is supposed to be a fragrant offering to God. And so when we saw that pie chart, especially Kim, it hit Kim really hard, is that, is that wow, that was a light bulb for us. And then he said something else. He said, he said, folks, what is your passion and what is your pain? So when you go out and serve, um, uh, maybe for Kim and I, it's not, the, it's not the laundry ministry, okay? But for us, PSS is, is, is a passion for us um, because, uh, because we, have, uh, we have seen such a great need here in our own family, we then said, hey, that is our passion. But I think Clinton really hit it on the head when he said, what is your passion? And then on the flip side of that, what is your pain? So if you have a great heart for maybe uh, war international, for women at risk, or whatever it is, then that would be your pain. It drives you. Every day you get up and it drives you to go out and do and serve and be that fragrant offering for God. So, guys, think about that from this point on. What is your passion? What is your pain? What is it that you need to do for God? Each person in this room, he's got a specific uh, purpose and reason and, and, perp and thing for you to do. Find out what that is and do it really, really well. You know, I think um, for us, it's obviously you don't have to do everything, um, but it's not okay to not do something. Um, sitting on the sidelines just isn't an option if you're a Christian. You know, for me, um, when I look at um, all that Christ has done for me, you know, I am a broken, messy person. I am a former pit dweller. And when I look at all that Christ gave, how can I not, <laughs> how can I not give all I have, Lord willing, to the, my last breath in, in thanksgiving to him? And how can I not want to rescue other pit dwellers like I was. You know, um, there was a, a story I heard on the news actually a few years back about a man who was um, at a beach, I think it was in California, and he was walking into the ocean to commit suicide. And he was walking slowly. And as he would go into the ocean, he would look back over his shoulder. And he would watch and wait. And then he would go a little farther. And there were people on the beach. And there were lots of people on the beach. There was even emergency medical professionals on the beach, and they all just stood there. And it took like an hour or more, and he finally drowned himself. That's not acceptable. And as a church, I wonder, are we standing there watching people 
who are looking back over their shoulder and saying, where is my hope? <laughs> where is my light? Where is truth? What do you have for me? Is there nothing? Should I just give up? And we have that. We have that. It is truth. It is hope. It is life. And for us to stand there and not offer it, it's just not acceptable. And so that is the passion that we want to pass on to our children. That is the passion we want to ignite. Um, because, you know, I see sometimes as we're in a lifeboat and we're, we're, mm. we're driving around in this lifeboat and there's all these people drowning in the water and we're pulling in as many as we can. But our lifeboat can only hold so many. Mm -hmm. We have five kiddos. Uh, I have a child with special needs. You know, we do have things that, that take our time and our responsibility as well, just like all of you. And so there's only so much that we can do that we can pull in. But when we, when we join together as a church, I mean, look around at the number of lifeboats in this mm -hmm. audience. There is enough for us all to get to work and, and to show the great, great love of Jesus to people who we've seen personally really, really need it and want to hear it. Can you pray for us? Yep. Lord, uh, we are grateful. Um, we're grateful for opportunities. Uh, Lord, you give those opportunities to us. And uh, it's, it's just for us to reach out and grab onto them. It's nothing to be scared of because guess what? You're going with us. You're in that lifeboat with us and you're, and you're doing it. We just get to participate. We get to experience the wonderful blessing of, of just partnering with you. And I know, and I speak from personal experience, I've seen that here in our family. And it is amazing. And Lord, I just ask that we as a church would partner together. We'd get in all of our lifeboats. We'd row out and start pulling in one after another until our boats are so full, and then pass that on to other people. Take up that gauntlet. Lord, help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We could conclude the service at this point, but uh, we'll go ahead and preach the message anyways. So, but it's uh, very evident what's on their hearts. Thank you, Kim and Lance. Appreciate it. Starting in chapter 2, verse 14, the, uh, the Apostle James, what he does is he helps us understand the dilemma between faith and works, and he starts off with a rhetorical question. He says, what good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works, can that faith save him? Now, the construct of this sentence is one of a negative outcome, and it is, it's expected. And the emphasis here is this question of the true, what, what's emphasized here is, is the question of not the true nature of faith, but the false claim to it. And that's what he's trying to address is that there is a false claim to it. He knew that they lived within a society where there was many people that were intellectuals. And they had intellectually assessed what Christianity was. And they even went through the motions of Christianity, and it, but it, would, it never went past their minds. It never went past just the attendance on Sunday morning. What they did throughout the rest of the week was their own time. And they did not see themselves as the whole, the whole life, the whole pie is God's. They see, they see it only as a slice. And that's what James is flushing out. He's trying to help people understand that intellectual faith does not go far enough. It's not what God wants in our life. 
When we surrender our life to Christ, he wants everything, every aspect of us. So that's the situation. That's the, that's the issue that's at hand. Please understand, though, that James is not teaching that we're saved by our works. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. That's what we're saved by. He's already acknowledged that in chapter 1, but he is saying that there needs to be evidence in our life. Then he moves on into the next verse and gives a dire situation. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacks in daily food, and one of you says, Go, be go in peace and be warm and be filled, and don't give them what is necessary for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So what is James saying? Why is this a dire situation? What's well, dire because we can only go so long without food or without clothing. There needs to be an immediate response here. Now it's helpful for us to understand because we have needs all around us. We don't know whether we should be giving handouts to the guy at the end of the expressway or to the, the, the person that's coming and, and just wants, wants money or someone to pay your bills. How do we know? Well, what's the context here? Well, the context was the church was under persecution. Remember that. Now these were most likely, this was, even though it's stated in a hypothetical way, it was probably very real that these were believers that had lost all their belongings because of persecution. And so James is saying there needs to be action on our parts at times when, an, uh, when a need comes in, into play. Now he gives a situation here, but then James gives in a kind of a sarcastic way, he takes a common Jewish farewell. Go in peace, be warm, and be filled. It was something that they often said to people. And James says this, and he does it with a sense of sarcasm to point out that the sentimental good wishes do no good in creating peace, in, in, in keeping one warm, or filling their belly. There has to be actions to all of this. And James concludes that if, it's, if you don't have it, this faith is dead. It's no good. Church, we have been given a specific mandate, and the mandate is for the church to be church of action. John tells us this in 1 John chapter 3, he says this, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I think passages like this cut to the heart of the church in North America. By all, by all claims, we would have to admit that we are the wealthiest people that have ever walked on the face of this planet. Now, I don't say that as a criticism. I say it to invoke a sense of responsibility for those that have. We're told that we're, the average is that Americans live on $90 a day, whereas 50% of the world lives on less than $2 a day. That's the rest of the world. Steve Corbett, the uh, author of When Helping Hurts, a great book for you to read, says this when it comes to putting our faith into action. He says, what is the task of the church? We are to embody Jesus Christ by doing what he did and what he continues to do through us. Remember what we said at communion. 
Christ set the example for us. This is what he continues on to say. This is what we are to do. Declaring, using both words and deeds, that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, who is bringing in a kingdom of righteousness, justice, and peace. And the church needs to do this where Jesus did it, among the blind, among the lame, the sick, the outcast, and the poor. So here's our challenge again today. What is one way we can allow God's love to flow through us to meet the needs of others? What's one way? We continue on in the passage, and James gives kind of a throwdown. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from my works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He is putting forth the challenge that showing your faith by works is always going to win out. But then he gets into theology when he says this. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish, foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? See, what he does here is he gets into this belief that the Jews had, which was a true belief, that God was one. He's, they believed in a monotheistic uh, belief system. James wasn't refuting that. We believe that God is one. But what he is saying is you're not going far enough. There's lots of people that believe that God is one. In fact, let me give you an example. Demons. Demons believe in God. They not only believe in God, they shudder. The word shudder means to bristle up. And what James is doing is he's making a contrast with these intellectuals. And he's saying, you believers, you believe in God, but it results in nothing in your life. And we have demons over here that believe in God, and at least they bristle up. At least there's some kind of reaction to their archenemy, God. And the challenge that he's given to the church, he's given to the church today as well, is that we are to not take this in vain. We are to live out our faith. Let me apply this in, a, in another way. The motivation that James is talking about is basically when you love someone, it leads to action. Now let me give a human illustration. All of us fell in love at one time. Now, maybe some of you are young and you haven't got to that place, but there's all kinds of stories in this auditorium. I know for me that there was a time in my life where I met my lady for the very first time, and little did I realize that would set off a course of actions that would, would cost me, it would, in a good way, <laughs> in a good way, and it would totally change who I was as an individual. It started with her falling off her bike and me stopping and trying to help her up and her being embarrassed. And it's then later started, it continued on with the first date. Now that was the big gamble as to whether she would actually go out with me. And probably even the bigger gamble was the second date. And then, then we moved down, we, de we, we date for four years, we get married, and then we have three children, and we raise those three children. Those three children get married, and now we're expecting to be grandparents. And 30 years of marriage later, we continue down the road. Now, it would be foolish of me to say, wow, when you love someone, it wouldn't cost you anything. It won't change a thing. We all know that when you love someone, it radically changes who you are. Well, think about it in terms of God. 
When we fall in love with God, we don't fall in love with our head. We fall in love with our heart. It's our whole being. And when we fall in love with God, it starts changing who we are from the inside out. I know for myself, when I first gave, myself, gave my life to Christ, I started reading God's word feverishly. I wanted to know what God had to say. I started sharing my faith actually rather boldly, sometimes too boldly, and, and got myself in trouble at times. They, I, I started giving money. I was a tightwad. It still am. Uh, but I, I, I started releasing it because I felt like, okay, God said I am, everything is his. I'm going to give it over to God. And then I went to Bible college. And then I got married. And then I was 14 years in youth ministry and seven years working as an outreach pastor and seven years uh, working in missions and helping get churches established. And now for over two and a half years, a lead pastor for Mission View. All of these things were because Jesus Christ met me at the age of 14 and started the ball rolling. Every one of us have our own story. So here's my question. What's the evidence of your love for Jesus? What's the evidence of your love for Jesus? Here's our challenge again. What's one way we can allow God's love to flow through us? What's one way? In the passage, James then gives two Old Testament examples. We won't spend a lot of time here, but we will talk about Abraham. And this is what it says here. The first example was Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and it was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, I want to clarify something. That last statement seems to be a contradiction, contradiction to something Paul said. James says, so you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, Paul, in Romans chapter 4, verse 2, says this. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And then he goes on and says he was justified by faith and faith alone. Was that a contradiction? It wasn't for this reason, two reasons. Number one, Paul was referring to Abraham's salvation experience. And both James and Paul said that it was credited to him as righteousness. That's a quoting of Genesis 15, 6, which most theologians would say that was the place where Abraham really placed his faith in the living God. And so Paul is talking about the salvation experience. What's James talking about? When he referred to his son Isaac on the altar, that's Genesis chapter 22, many, many years after his salvation experience. And so this is the proof of his faith and that's what all that James is saying. There is proof in his faith because it led to actions. Then we move to Rahab. Same thing. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Think about that situation. Joshua chapter 2. The people of Israel are about to take over the promised land. Joshua sends spies into Jericho to, to look at the city. The spies go in and Rahab protects the spies and, and says to them that I know that your God is the one true God. 
Now that's the salvation verse in, jo in Joshua chapter 2, verse 11. Why is it the salvation verse? It's the salvation verse because she was polytheistic previous. She believed in many, many gods. And now she's come to acknowledge that there is one true God that we believe in, and that as a, as a result, she hid the spies and protected them and sent them out by another way. Again, James is just using this as proof that works will verify what we believe. Now the verdict was this, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What's James saying? Your body, it needs a human spirit in order for it to move, in order for it to walk, in order for it to not be in the grave. It has to be shown alive. And you need the human spirit. And for the believer, our work for God is that verification, is that verification that we are alive in Him. So our challenge, what's one way we can allow God's love to flow through us that we can meet practical needs. As we conclude, I want us to think of work in four ways, four keys to our work for God. Here's number one. If we're going to work for God, we invest into people. That's what we do. We invest into people. Now, this speaks to our priorities because a lot of us have a lot of different priorities in life. And what this is saying is sometimes we have to rearrange our priorities so that investing into people becomes a higher priority. Jesus said that we are to make an investment into individuals, and he set the example for us. For three years in his ministry, what did he do? He invested into people. He cared for the helpless. He cared for the homeless. He cared for those that were harassed and helpless. And so he came alongside of them. He invested into people. I love the fact that I see so many people in our ministry investing into people. All the people that are taking care of our children, they're making an investment into people. Those of you that have coworkers that you pray for them, you come alongside of them, you invite them to lunch, you want to show them the love of God. That is investing into people. If you're a business owner and you take those employees of yours and you really shepherd them towards Christ, you're investing into people, and that's what God calls us to do. Number two, though, we have to have patience in our work. People are never a project. We should never treat people that way. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. My friends, when we do the summer outreaches, I want you to know it's not the outreach that's important. It's the people. It's the people that we meet, the people that we can encourage, the conversations that we can have, and understand that it's kind of like planting a crop. You can't put the seed in the ground and expect the next day that there's going to be a full-grown corn ready to eat. It takes time for that to be cultivated. Here's number three. The key to our work is a relationship with God. That sounds so basic, but please understand this, that if we don't have a relationship with God and we're not fellowshipping with God and God is not working in this heart of ours, there will be no overflow to anybody else. There will be no investment. 
And if we are away from God, if anything, we need to draw closer to him. And what we're doing in our life is allowing the overflow of God to overflow into other people's lives. That's what Jesus did. In his ministry, he tried to usher people into the presence of God, into a relationship with the Father. And that's what he wants. And there will be times in our situation that we meet needs, practical needs that people have. And what they're going to be doing, what we're doing is pushing them towards a relationship with the living God because you're an extension of them. And the final thing, the key to our work is making disciples. We're told in 2 Timothy that we are to invest into faithful men. And when we do that, when we invest into faithful people, we compound the workforce. We expand the workforce for God. Now, having said all these things and looked at this passage, let me tell you that the enemy is just not going to sit back. The enemy is not going to just sit back and say, you know what, you guys are motivated to work for me or work for God, and I'm just going to leave you alone because, you know, you need, you need, you need some rest. No, he is always going to work overtime in trying to distract our lives and to get us fighting with each other and bickering or, or dividing our families. I have, I don't know if you've noticed it, but the more people I talk with, I hear of fights within their families. I hear of fights within different churches. And, and there just seems like it's the, the enemy is working overtime on division. I'm thankful. I feel like we have a unity here, but I know that that can happen here as well. And so what we need to keep in mind is that there is an enemy that wants to distract us. And as we sing this final song, I want us to think about, again, this challenge. How can we focus in on what God wants to do in our life and for allowing God's love to overflow in our life?